Nightcaps of the Living Dead. Papa Beans and Daddy, Part 1. Quid pro quo, Guillermo. What's in your glass? <laughs> I have let the sky I fall, let it crumble. It's Guys, delicious. We're, we're not joking around when we say how much we are obsessed with Skyfall. I want them to pay us and sponsor us, but you know what? I, I feel like they're smart. We're giving them our money and <laughs> we're buying cases of those. They don't want to sponsor yep. us. Yep, my whole cabinet is filled with them. Uh, for me, I, I poured a glass of rosé because it's been 90 degrees and I really wanted to have a bottle of Chianti for the for this episode but one i don't think i'm sophisticated enough to drink chianti i'm the cabernet and pinot noir girl all all day it's just been so hot the world's on fire and everything so i was like rosé and then right before we started this episode rbg died so dear listeners i know that you're feeling the hurt that we're feeling um we have harder alcohol on hand i poured myself a shot of whiskey of writer's tears it's a really good irish whiskey i highly highly Ooh. recommend it way better than jameson or anything like that i um writer's tears and uh pickle juice chaser it's my pickleback it's a Your homemade pickleback pickle and i know some people do yes. it with vodka and and then follow it with a pickle chaser but no 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 you it feels like a sandwich if you have a buttery whiskey before and you chase it with some pickle juice and some people think that's really gross but i stand by it i love it you've done some picklebacks with me yeah i have i have i love it as well in austin remember our pickleback experience oh yeah oh those were really good i remember that yes uh so yeah guillermo i think it's pretty obvious what we're talking about tonight Yes, the silence of the lambs. Yes, so we decided to do this in celebration of our new plexiglass dividing, mask wearing culture. Uh, this came out in 1991, based on the book by Thomas Harris and directed by Jonathan Demi. Swept the Oscars, uh, got Demi an award, and Jodie Foster, as well as Sir Anthony Hopkins. Did you read the book when it came out? Not when it came out. I read it later on in life. Okay. So I kind of had seen the movie first and then read the book. Gotcha. And mostly because I was interested in Red Dragon, which is the fir- the book that comes before this one. Right. And that, that's a um, fascinating piece. Yeah. And yeah, that book is really good as well. So yeah. So I don't know. I I know the movie first and then the so how Second. how old are you? Did you see this in movie theaters? What where were you when you yes, saw Yes, I have a you really crazy experience i was really this movie came out in i think january or february of that year Mm -hmm. um and it was a hit it was packed i was in puerto rico you could barely get seats to it i had to sit on the first row on the front row oh wow and these are not like our awesome arc light theaters where the front row is is as good as any other row this is like the front row where my neck it's like fucking you're looking, looking up, up Hamill Lecter's nose yeah and so and it was it, worth this it. is a movie with intense close-ups which we'll talk oh, about all about that so yeah. imagine me up in the face looking at the nostrils wow you got the real Hopkins. experience that that's yeah, pretty very awesome. intense oh I had no and, idea that's really cool to see it in the theater I saw it at home I, I was a youngin and I think I think my parents were yeah I think somebody brought it home from the video store and, and that's how I watched it and then I remember reading the book 
shortly Did you watch after. it before the yes. Oscar ceremony yes. and all that? Because I think it had already come out. It was one of those movies that was released early in the year, which is very rare. Mm-hmm. That one, like beginning of the year Actually, and then it won the Oscar a year later. I, I couldn't tell you if I saw it pre or post Oscar because in my my recollection, I just remember seeing it and loving it as a young person. So I felt like it didn't really have that kind of um, that stigma around it when I watched it. I just mm-hmm. I really loved Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster in this. And uh, I just remember thinking, wow, this is intense. I just I greatly enjoyed it and also i mean i was kind of crushing on anthony hopkins a little bit i mean i love me oh, a bad he boy smizes. he's <laughs> he like that, that stare serial killer stare i mean maybe he created a module for other people i dated in my life i don't know <laughs> i mean because yeah i i was in that, that phase of i'm a serious actress i'm only attracted to serious actors and i had <laughs> posters like i i would cut out uh things of uh daniel day lewis because you know he's not mm-hmm. posing for tiger beat anytime soon but i was like <laughs> <laughs> i was cutting out pictures of him and last of the mohicans and, and definitely not my left foot or anything but i mean just <laughs> well that's that's it i, mean, I had a similar i was obsessed with emma thompson and kenneth Branagh when right? they were at that during this period like they were like the power couple i thought yeah. it was so cute yeah and you know they were doing um, with Howard's End, and then they did. I think this is before she wrote. I think they already got divorced by this point. But oh. um, they were doing Dead Again. I love Dead Again. <laughs> um, and what was there was another one, a Shakespeare movie that they did together. And then she won the Oscar for Sense and Sensibility, yeah. and then he went on to date Helena, and all that shit. And that went all down. went down. But it's, <laughs> it's so funny because as you're coming up, you're like, I'm I'm into this field, and I want to be attracted to not only these beautiful people, but they're respected for their craft, and I want to be like some weird crushing psychosomatic thing which i'll take that any day because i mean of course i love new kids on the block too <laughs> but i was all about daniel day and marlon brando and denzel washington and all these people that i'm like yeah i want i, I want. oh and philadelphia philadelphia came out after this right yes yes another like another jonathan demi movie did he did jonathan demi die like a year or two years ago yeah it's... he died like in 2017 i think he died pretty recently okay. Okay, so let's get into this. Silence of the Lambs. Uh, where do you want to start? Do, 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 do. I don't know if I did that right. Uh, uh, you did um, that beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> let's start at the beginning with the credits. Let's start with the credits. What are the you going to say? The poltergeist credits. Well, they look just like the poltergeist credits, okay. which I think full circle from our first episode. You know what I put in my notes? That they're Twin Peaks credits. <gasps> Which, oh my God, that's amazing because right. I have all these comments about Twin Peaks They're later so on. I don't know if I want to go into them yet. There's so many Twin Peaks things as, as As it happens, then you point out the Twin Peaks connection because at the first time I saw this, I did not get that memo. And of course, as an older person, and now you and I are obsessed with Twin Peaks and you teach courses on it at UNC, I I just saw so many lynchianisms. Yep, I, see, I saw that. So I, didn't, I didn't catch the credits. I was thinking poltergeist. The credits were just Twin Peaks. And, white, but. and Twin Peaks came around, around this time right this is yeah this movie, movie essentially was produced while twin peaks was in its heyday so this movie came out in 91 and twin peaks ran from 1990 to 91 mm-hmm. yeah the, yeah when the movie was being made essentially i think so, there's some yeah. fanboy director things going on i think that demi and lynch were probably fans of each other or definitely demi for for lynch 
I, I saw yeah, so no, no, many no. things. I saw so many things. Well, you're right of each other because I also saw things that then when David Lynch made Fire Walk With Me, mm-hmm. I saw some Fire Walk With Me stuff, okay. which came out a year came out after right after Silence of the Lambs won the Oscar. Mm-hmm. So when David Lynch was making Fire Walk With Me, Silence of the Lambs was in theaters. Gotcha. So they, they influenced each oh, other, I would say. What a time to be alive. <laughs> yes. The 90s. The 90s. Simpler times. Simpler times. Simpler times. Um, but yeah, like I want to start talking about the opening credit sequence. It basically shows Clarice training by herself, physical training through the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually, she, you know, we see her kind of run through the woods and do all these different obstacle type things. Um, and then she gets a call to go into Crawford's office. Mm-hmm. And there's that uh, very famous elevator shot where she goes into the elevator with all so the men. And she's so small. She's so tiny and small. And all these men are there surrounding her. And you immediately get like, okay, she's in a male-dominated field. She has to work twice as hard and prove herself and probably get so much shit on every level every single day. Which, again, is what Ruth had to do when she became <sighs> Ruth. And Ruth was also tiny. <laughs> yeah, she was also a tiny woman in a man's out. world. Yeah, yeah <laughs> we're working out. It's weird. The connections are so strange because I actually thought I didn't know she was going to die today, but I thought of her when I was watching that opening sequence. I really did. Wow. It was like, oh, this is Ruth. You know, she's, you know, a badass. She works out. She's in a man's world. She's going to she's not afraid of anybody. Calm down your ESP powers that are making Harvard with all those men around her do her thing you know you're being a regular christopher walken in this you're being a little dead zony don't i don't i don't (laughs) want to know about this don't tell me the horrors okay so she's she goes up to jack crawford's office in the elevator and something i do like is that we're on this sense of discovery with her with the protagonist immediately you know she's running through the woods and training in the elevator and you you see her perspective and when she gets in the office she's looking at these pictures on the wall and you just Mm -hmm. see she's piecing everything together you're immediately with this girl and then so the first thing that happens which i think is kind of like the major revelation that I had revisiting this movie later in life that I never noticed when I saw it back in the 91. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of visual design of the movie with the camera. So um, Jonathan Demme is known for his close-ups. Mm-hmm. And in this particular movie, he does something that I don't know if people notice. Oh, hold on, hold on. We got Fast and the Furious on my street. Oh, shit. Okay. Rum, rum. <laughs> okay, start again. So the, there's something very interesting in this movie that's very groundbreaking in terms of its visual language. It might seem normal, but he's doing something very radical with the close-ups and the POV shots. So yes. if you notice, and this the first time it's established is in this scene with Crawford. Mm-hmm. So what he does, and you can see this throughout the movie, and he plays with this idea, and this is what's so brilliant about it, why mm-hmm. I think the cinematographer also won and everything. So in a normal scene between two people talking, you usually get, you know, the close-ups, but the close-ups are usually shot like around the 180 degree line mm-hmm. where someone's looking left to camera and the other person's looking right and they look like they're looking at each other, right? right. Normal coverage. Right. Or or you get, and especially in comedies, you get the two shot. You get two people sharing the frame or you get mm-hmm. over the shoulder shots. You get, it's more or casual. The over the shoulder, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, a, it's mm-hmm. about intimacy, two people together, whatever. Right. 
what he does here is that he turns the close-up of Crawford into a POV shot from Clarice's perspective. Right. So, which is very subtly jarring because it's not normal in a movie to do this. Exactly. And I remember Um, being a younger person first seeing this. I mean, now we know that this is a very distinguishing, and I hate to use the word iconic, but I feel like there are so many scenes and also camera angles and work done in this that is just iconic that it created a whole thing for itself it's infamous that whenever I, fo- I saw this camera angle from the first time as a young person i thought oh we're looking straight at him and i'm like what am i mm-hmm. supposed to think this man is thinking of her i was like mm-hmm. is this supposed to be sexualized is this is she creeped out what is this and then as we get through the rest of the film we see that that camera angle the straight on camera angle is to emphasize her perspective of how men treat her mm-hmm. um that she's, she's over sexualized she's judged she's she's demeaned uh or she's dismissed uh it's with every male and there's a few other characters that we'll get to later in the movie that they do that uh, shot he, to there's as well things change the things change a little bit but I, the main thesis is this movie very subtly, very subconsciously puts you in the position of what a woman feels like when men look at her in, in everyday scenario. Man. And I saw this when I was, I think, like becoming a teenager. So seeing this now, seeing this now in the era of Me Too and a fully fledged woman, this was even more jarring this time around. I, this really had an effect for me. And so you noticed it more, oh, right? Oh, yes. Oh, my God. I have chills thinking about it. Yes. He, he, captured that so brilliantly and i read so many articles after i rewatched this movie the other night i i was just like okay let's talk about this camera angle and i know that you know it's it's really highly respected and it was a brilliant storytelling technique but so many articles were talking about how um they, they emphasize jodie foster and anthony hopkins of the tete-a-tete of mm-hmm just that that intensity and also that you're facing evil straight on that you're mm-hmm. just like looking your monsters in the face. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. She's looking at every, like, uh, honestly, so many articles did not point out that she's looking the, at every single man this way. Every single one of yep, them. Yep, yep, the monsters. In fact, my my argument is that because it starts in this scene, mm-hmm. right, what's going on here, mm-hmm. so you're immediately aware of it. And I remember when I first, re- not this rewatch, but a rewatch probably like a year ago, mm-hmm. I noticed, oh my God, he's like looking at her in a, in a sexual way and you don't and and Crawford is not like a villain in the movie he's not Chilton right who's right. awful we'll right. get to Chilton in a second but, yeah <laughs> um but you know he's supposed to be her boss and he's trying to help her out or whatever he we find out that he tricked her into this job because he knew that Lecter would like her and, we, and all that plot point mm-hmm. but there's a sense of unease and uncomfortableness from the You're way he's looking at her. A hundred percent. And it you, makes you uncomfortable, the viewer, and it uh-huh. makes her uncomfortable. And you so settle, you but you side with him in the movie. You know he's doing some fucked up things, but you're like, okay, because I feel that Jody is looking for a daddy. She wants FBI agent to replace her her dead father, who I mean, he missed out on all of her developmental years, but I think that he just wasn't anything to write home about in the first place. Like he was a cop, so you have her seeking out the FBI agent um, chief as her dad, and I did not get that the first time around either. Like she was really. Oh yeah, so he's like, I'm gonna. She, she follow, wants but- her. She wants his approval so badly. She wants his approval, and he's keeping certain secrets from her. And she thinks, I think, in her perspective, she's like, oh, he's trying to protect me and this and that. And But then we, as a viewer, we see that 
he's actually being kind of shitty to her. He's not giving her all the information to, for her to do her job. Yeah, he's using it as, as, as a pawn in his own investigation. As a of, pawn. Of, Very much of like Bill Get Out. Bill. Yeah, she's, she's used as a pawn. Anyways, continue. Um, but, you know, at the end, of, also in these opening sequences, you get a sense that Jody Clarice is fearless. Um, and even though, like, again, she faces up to this man, she's not afraid to look them in the eye. Mm-hmm. At the same time that it's uncomfortable and they're looking at her in a strange way, mm-hmm. she, will, she will stare back. She will, she will stand her ground. And well, this happens over and over again in the movie. I also, seeing this with 20-20 eyes, I, I really resonated strongly with not only this camera angle, but her performance, because what you just said, she stares them down. You see, she's a little scared. She's a little intimidated. But um, I've always been taught that if you are walking down the street and there's kind of like this aggressive guy coming towards you, if he's eyeing you up and down, or he's like, hey, baby, or you, you feel a little threatened, you make direct eye contact with him. You make direct eye contact. And if they're like, hey, baby, you're like, hi. Because they're, they're thrown off that you're going to speak to them. They're like, oh, this bitch doesn't have any fear. For some weird reason, it's always worked and gotten me uh. out of any kind of trouble. Like I, when crazy ass people or drunk people or, you know, they come up next to me and I see them eyeing, like I honestly just look them dead in the eye. Because I think there's like this humanity that happens. There's this kind of weird tick of like there's any sense of decency in this person. They're like, oh, okay. And usually they, they overt their eyes. They're, they're not prepared for that. It startles them. And you only have like two seconds to walk past this motherfucker, you know? Which is, in a way, what Jody does or Clarice does with Shilton mm-hmm. and their first encounter, right? When they're down, when they go all the way down and it's the red scene. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, you know, he's like, well, you should have told me this before we left our office. And she's yeah. like, well, I don't have the pleasure of your company. And she completely destroys him and he walks away. Exactly, awesome. exactly. <laughs> and, and I think there's some power to using your feminine wiles, you know? like we as a society women will i mean we've been taught to second guess ourselves we've been taught to flirt been taught to smile and be complicit and we've been taught so many different things there's a lot of different messages roaming around and jody um even playing dumb she plays dumb with dr Lecter in this scene that we're about to get into she plays dumb with him on one line he calls her out on it she's like oh i can't do that strategy okay great and it doesn't mean that she's a bad person she's a survivalist this is what society has conditioned her to do before we get what i wanted to point out something that i noticed in this 2020 revision that there is a lot of um, african-american or black actors in this movie playing really tiny one-line roles Mm -hmm. or in the background and, mm-hmm. and it immediately made me think, Oh, you know, this is the guy who cast Denzel in the lead role in his next movie. Mm-hmm. Right. So he always has representation. He does. As what, much once as again, you can Jonathan, have in the 90s. Demi, Jonathan Demi, Demi is a humanist. He really, um, he fought for gay causes for minorities, for women. He really, really was an activist and tried to do that in his storytelling. And that's why when this film came out, there was a huge blowback with the trans oh, community, the, we're, we're which we'll get, get to. We're going to get there. <laughs> we'll get to after I have, have another. to say there. I, yes, you and I things are going to go say. It's very it. complicated. I've had very these complicated. discussions. Mm-hmm. Very complicated what happens in this movie. Um, but just in this part when she's walking, she's with Chilton, the same thing happens. Chilton is more gross than He's Crawford. So He's more Ugh. lecherous. He's so gross. Um, tries to take her out into town, and but she completely handles him and plays him mm-hmm. and gets what she wants out of him. 
But the the uh, black security guard of the prison downstairs, he's very gentle with her and caring. Like it's a small part; he appears a couple of times in the movie. But I really noticed him, mm-hmm. um, where he and he has also a close up thing with her when she, after she walks in through the bars. Mm-hmm. And she looks at him, and by contrast, the way he looks at her is not the same way that the other two characters have looked at her. Correct. So it makes a contrast between the way this black character looks at her. Mm-hmm. He's actually looking out for her because he understands her situation. And, and she understands situation. that. She completely understands that. It's kind of, um, I mean, not to say, whenever I was reading these these articles about how you're facing evil and like how men look at her this way. And I was just like, okay, I get that, but it's not so one-sided in, in that element. It's just how different men, and she usually has to be on the defense. So she's going mm-hmm. to look at them straight dead on and it's how they interpret her action. And you, you as a viewer will soften with that. And so for this man, he wasn't this um, trope. He wasn't just like, okay, here's the prop, the token black guy. He was not that at all. And also, this place, this takes. Uh, she was in Maryland for the psychiatric hospital, correct? Because yeah, the whole thing's in Virginia, yes. and then she goes to Baltimore. Um, lots of black people in Baltimore, so yeah, you better cast a lot of black people. Like, come on. Um, and so this guy was there, and he had this very human moment with her. And I mm-hmm. felt between the two of them, we as an audience member were like, he's not threatening. He's not a scary person. We care about this person. And she realizes that. And so then she goes past all the fucking psychos that are touching themselves and saying horrible things to her, which most women hear on the street every single day. The day after Trump was elected, I got a lot of stuff, which was really terrifying for me. Um and so she goes to Hannibal Lecter's cell, to and he's Hannibal. waiting for we her. Get, we get our first scene with Lecter. So here's what I noticed. So we, Jonathan Demi has established this relationship of the POV of Clarice with these two white men. First Crawford, who's her boss, who's kind of like a father figure to her, but also mm-hmm. kind of looks at her in a little strange way. Mm-hmm. Then we have a very lecherous, awful Chilton mm-hmm. who's trying to like hit on her. Exactly. The, the cheesy guy her. at work is what I and he's feel. the worst. And yeah. then she gets a kind of caring, loving look or not loving, but kind of empathetic look from the black security person that's mm-hmm. down there mm-hmm. before she walks into the thing. And then, so when she encounters Lecter, um, of course, this scene is also playing with his close-ups and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So what I noticed is at some point in that scene, it switches into Lecter's POV. So this is, it's for the first time in the movie, you see Lecter looking at her. Mm-hmm. In the middle of this scene, there's this switcheroo mm-hmm. where she becomes what he's looking at as opposed to what she's looking at. Yes. And so there's this establishes this guy is different. Mm-hmm. This guy, we can we can go into his point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a power dynamic between them and they're equals in some way in the movie. The way the movie's telling you that they're equal, maybe in their brains or did, did they're you, savvy. I want, I want to ask you both the time that you saw it when you were younger versus this most recent time. Did you think that she got in there and she was um af- naturally afraid that her character was kind of intimidated or was it an act and then also for Hannibal do you think that he was very intrigued with her and immediately made a decision that he liked her what what do you think those two characters dynamic when the first three lines were because they they instantly made a decision to continue speaking to each other to propel the action forward 
What do you? Well, first of all, shockingly, and I don't, I still don't, I cannot wrap my head around this. Mm-hmm. Um, Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor, and he's in this movie for I think 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yet you think he's in the whole movie. Yes. And I still, that's the one part. It still feels like he's always in the movie. I. Because he's Don't even that wonderful of an happens. actor of just like Hannibal Lecter is always in your head. I mean, Anthony yeah. Hopkins is always in your head in this movie. You are always And he's kind of always in hair head or something. Yeah. So it's fascinating. And it, so there's only three scenes of them meeting before well, the fourth one is in the cage um, in uh, Tennessee, in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that's it. They have four scenes together. That's it. So there's four scenes, three in there and one outside. That's it. And then the phone call at the end. And in those three, four scenes, this movie, an entire relationship, entire, it's insanely brilliant. Because it's everything for Which the movie. I, so I, in this very first one, yeah. oh, sorry, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to tie that super Inter- quick because I want to know your thoughts on this. I I tied this back to Get Out of um, Rel and and Chris, they are mm-hmm. only in the movie that one scene at the end. And That's also true. and also the alternate ending there and the plexiglass kind of situation talking to each other. So I was like, okay, that's kind of like a, a nod to that. But um, also, for I, I saw so much of Get Out in this this time around too. I mean, not just because well, it's no, fresh I know in my I, head. But Jordan Peele, that was one of his, this yeah. movie was one of his influences for sure. Well, it's funny. I went to an acting class back in the day where they said that Anthony Hopkins has a practice where he reads his script at least 200 times. He reads it 200 times for memorization and to make different choices and to fail with those choices. And just as rehearsal, he does it a minimum of 200 times. And one of the IMDb facts about Jordan Peele, he was like, I wrote at least 200 drafts of this script. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought, oh, that's such an interesting thing. But okay, so tell me why you think for Anthony and Jody, they had that standoff. Um, she she enters the room and he's just waiting for her. Why do you think that he chose to spoke to her? Why did he? Why do you think he took her on as a pupil? So there's two things. You know, there's that plot point where where um, Crawford later on says, "Oh, if I if I sent you in there knowing what you had to do, he would have read it in you in two seconds." But I think he's completely underestimating Clarice. A hundred percent. Yes, I believe that as well. In the later scenes, she already knows that she what's, knows what's up, up, and she still she still fools him. Here's the thing. I think Lecter has met someone who he doesn't quite understand from the get-go, who's more complicated than he can. He's usually, you know, he consumes people. That's literally, figuratively in their head. And then also he eats them, right? Mm -hmm. He consumes people. And he meets someone that he can't quite place. And even after she knows, so I think Crawford is wrong, because even after she knows what the drill is, She's that's when she's most able to fool him with the whole the lie about the, what they're promising him and all this stuff. She completely believes her. Mm-hmm. He falls for it. 100%. He completely yeah, falls for it. And he's the smartest person, whatever. Yeah. Right. He falls for it. So mm-hmm. I think he meets someone that he doesn't understand. So his, his entire attraction to this relationship is what this is why he wants quid pro quo. Right. He wants mm-hmm. to find out about her life because he doesn't really understand her. Mm-hmm. He meets a complete mystery to him. Because I and also think, and this is only talking to you, I did not think about this going 
into the podcast, but after hearing what you just said now, we're having a quid pro quo. <laughs> yeah. Hello, Gladys. Hello. Hello. Hello, Dr. Lecter. With her, her Virginia accent, her West Virginia <laughs> accent slash Montana. Um, <laughs> so I, I just had this thought that I think that he feels like so many people are textbook that he can, mm-hmm. as a, you know, therapist, he, he's really intrigued with her because she's not textbook. I think that he's so ingenious. I mean, he's literally thrown off. Yes, right. exactly. But that's exciting to him because he likes it's the thrill of the that chase. He can't understand the thrill of the he chase. He wants to challenge. He it, wants to challenge. And he he can write off anybody of like, okay, you're this schizoid, you're this, you're that. Like this bores me. Whatever. I like art. I like beauty and and everything. And for her, for her not to be so stunningly beautiful, like yeah, she, she's very pretty, but she's a quiet pretty, and she has a complicated traumatic past, and she's also trying to hide her past and transform into something new. So I think that she does keep. Him on his toes uh and she's not purposely trying to or maybe she is maybe that's a deeper subtext of the movie if that's her technique as a phenomenal fbi agent but i really think that she's trying to deal with trauma and um do it in such a strong way that i honestly thought the first time i saw this movie that dr Lecter was attracted to her vulnerability that nobody could fully mm-hmm. let them go and he could immediately write them off in one category or the other and they would accept their fate. This time around, I was just like, no, he is not attracted to the vulnerability. He's attracted to her resilience. She has mm-hmm. had a life. She has had a life. And she's trying to make it better. And he's, he made a decision to help her go forward with that. He immediately decided within five seconds of meeting her that he's going to help her on her journey. I didn't think about that until I talked to you, Dr. G. <laughs> well, going along those lines, I think it's it's both. He sees someone who is very vulnerable, very exposed, very much an open book, yet at the same time, completely unafraid. Yeah. And that confuses him. That paranox she's confuses seen it. him. She's seen it all. She experienced death. She's experienced she's like, terror. She's not afraid. She's a woman in today's world. Like, come on. Show me so, something good. And I think that's why... I. Jodie Foster completely deserves this Oscar. Yeah. Because she's amazing. Uh, any other actress would have played her too naive or too this or too that or too. It would have been a character. And she, and it would she have was been like very too, and real. There's like four levels going on here yeah. at the same time <laughs> in like one line. And it's very complex. Mm-hmm. And so I think he's attracted to her complexity as a human being. Yes, I agree. That's basically what it is. Yeah. And. It to him is a project that he wants to kind of figure out because she's so complex, but he never does. I don't think he does. That's okay. my argument. Yeah, I agree with that. She wins. <laughs> um, yeah, because one of the things that he, that he says is like, oh, you know, I know your background. You're poor white trash. And da-da-da, when he yells at her at the end. Trying to get a reaction. Trying, and- trying to get a reaction and simplify her into a stereotype. And that doesn't really work. Um, so, fail. <laughs> Okay, so for this first meeting, this is what brought me back to 2020 of whenever she enters and she's talking to Dr. Lecter and they're like, got to keep your distance. Keep your distance. <laughs> be, be away from this person because of danger. I'm like, okay, COVID. And then he's through the glass. <laughs> but I burst out laughing whenever he is, he's done with her. And he's just, he just turns around. He's like, okay, blah, blah, blah. Like he's, he's done with the interview. That is me on every Zoom call ever. I have, <laughs> I have nowhere to go. I just want it to be done. I'm just done. 
I, I, I've been on this fucking Zoom thing for an hour and... Okay, go. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, speak. okay, well, I gotta go to the other room. <laughs> I just don't want to be sitting here anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. And I just thought it was funny because like, he's in prison. He's in a mental hospital. And it's just like, okay, that's enough for today. <laughs> like, what are you gonna do? <laughs> <laughs> So that reminded that me of today. That is true. That is true. And it's, it's, it, uh, we have come to learn in isolation. Doesn't mean that we want to be on every Zoom call ever oh, with no, all these people. I don't. And I love, I love, I love my friends so much. I was starting to do Zoom in the beginning. I have some friends that love Zoom. They're so into it. For me, I just feel like there's always a disconnect. I am a one-on-one person, or you know, I, yep, I don't know. I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, I'm. Bad. You are the only person I Zoom with. I know. By the way. I know. I started to do it in the beginning and now they're like fewer and fewer. So I, yeah. I don't talk to anybody. So she goes, no, the, I don't I, text me. That's my, I'm into I'll that. text. I like texting. I, I don't do know too. Like well, cause you're a writer. Like I get it. Mm-hmm. So she, after this whole mind fuckery with Lecter, she goes to the car and we see like well there's that like moment we oh talk about that, oh yeah that whole thing. of course Gross the guy's thing. jerking off and, and jerking out was a face i mean just to really show that you know that that's kind of i mean a new york subway that's normal but i mean it's it's to bring home the point of just like whenever women walk down the street there's always that i mean it's it's terrifying but it's also a Okay, so here's the way I read it, 2020 eyes. This is kind of like a sexual assault moment hmm. because I noticed later on in later scenes, because this is the the guy who dies, right? Collector mm-hmm. kind of makes him yeah. kill himself He's or like, something. Don't you like, do that to her. Don't, exactly. He's protective of her. And so when Crawford calls her later on to tell let her know that he died, you can tell that there was like a deleted scene or like a, a, a moment we didn't see mm-hmm. where she reported this to the FBI as some sort of as a, as a sexual assault. Hmm. Um, and then he's letting her know, okay, that you're the person that victimized you is now dead. Like, you know, did you, did, you, did you get that from that conversation? I, I didn't. I didn't get that Maybe she... I'm, I'm, I'm giving Crawford too much credit. <sighs> I didn't get like that. Justice, you got justice for what happened to you. I, you I got that from Hannibal Lecter, but I didn't get the the interpretation that you have of that she called it in. Because whenever she goes to the car and she sees her car, and then she has this whole thing, this flashback about her dad, well, and we, we reveal more about her. I, watching it with 2020 eyes, I was just like, okay, either he really got into your head or this this sexual aggression where this guy just thought he could throw some cum at you, even though he's a sexually disturbed person and mentally disturbed person. Um, and it's such a, a thing for women not to cry at work. It shows your weakness. So we're taught to just like, Nope, save it for outside, go outside, which is really fucked up. Same for the same rules go for, for men, especially that 1950s thing of like, you gotta like sports and don't let them see you soft. And like this macho culture that's taught from, mm-hmm. you know, from generation to generation. And so I thought that whenever she went to the car to cry, I honestly, as a viewer, was excited to think, okay, is it because Hannibal trudged up the psychological trauma made her really go into those deep buried, the the deep buried trauma? Or is it because this guy did this to her and she felt humiliated and there was nothing she could do? She lost all control. She was a victim. She's trying not to be a victim. So I, I... 
I was interested to see that this time around, and I don't know the answer. So that's interesting. What triggered the? Because she walk, and they do this a lot in the movie where she walks into her memory. She's mm-hmm. always walking. She chooses and to. In her cuts. She chooses to. And then, so when she's walking to another car, she walks into the memory where she sees her dad. Mm-hmm. And I think you know what I like. You, we tend to think that it was Lecter by you know calling her, calling her white trash, and this is what like he. Th- I think like he thinks he knows her, mm-hmm. but maybe you're right. Maybe that's not what's triggering the memory. It's it's the the, the sexual assault moment. I call mm-hmm. it a sexual assault because yeah. I think we could yeah. call it that now. Um, maybe back then it was not viewed as something like back that. Back then, but, it's being on the subway. Um, like it's that's why the Me Too movement like, just yeah, really everybody's just like, life. what is normal to you? And then same for Get Out. Like, what are these? Get Out is what is what are these microaggressions that are deemed normal to you? And for Silence of the Lambs, for me, is like, what are these? quote unquote sexual assaults that I'm like, oh, that's just some guy shaking his dick at you on the street because I've lived in major cities. I mean, it's it's really a common like, society. I like this interpretation that you're bringing. So that the, the, the traumatic memory or or the memory mm-hmm. of her dad is not triggered by Lecter. Mm-hmm. Lecter failed in trying to put her in a box. It's triggered by, by the visceral experience that she had with this with this other yeah. inmate. Yeah. Um and then the, oh, this is interesting. And then what Lecter does, which is essentially our understanding is that Lecter kind of causes the guy to die, like by psycho. And I don't know what he eats his own tongue or something. Well, he but somehow he caused it. He has Clarice's back at the end. Yeah, I mean, pretty he much. He talked to him and made him kill himself or mm-hmm. something. But that is kind of brushed to the side like in a way he's trying to do some sort of courting like oh this is my girl don't fuck with her Mm -hmm. but that doesn't affect her we Mm -hmm. never we hear that but it's not really important to her Hmm. because she doesn't fall for that yeah so she's on her own journey oh i like this oh i like that you like that i like it and this is jonathan demi's directing probably the book probably kind of it's a very Excuse well a thought out, way. like every single scene has intent from the shot to the dialogue, to the acting, the, the direction of the acting, to the characters that were cultivated. It is a very, very specific film. Um, yeah. I love that. Um, so what happens? Okay. So for some reason, my next note is about their next meeting. I think, oh, she go. Okay. I know what happens. She goes into the storage. She go, yeah, exactly. She goes to the storage where the guy kind of like demean, like the little hick. She's like, oh, you know, my guy will go in there with you. She's like, I don't need a fucking guy, whatever. And she's trying to get the, the door open with the, the tire, the, the jack. Um, and she's like, oh, in case anything happens to me, here's my card. Call, call this guy. Da, da, da. And, and once again, I get this reassurance that FBI daddy is her father figure. I mean, she's like, he's mm-hmm. got my back. You you call him, like, if anything goes wrong. Um, so she goes into the, the storage shed. She finds the car and the mannequin, the headless mannequin, this art scene um, hidden by an American flag, by the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she sees the grotesque the, the head. head with makeup on in the jar. When she goes huh. back to the mental institution uh-huh. to Baltimore in Baltimore, okay, it's raining and he gives her a towel and there's that scene where she sits down and he's in the dark. You're right. You're you're right. Mm-hmm. So and then yeah. he she basically tells him, "Oh, I figured it out." What you were really saying? That's not really his name. It's an anagram. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. So this scene 
what's interesting because in the first scene there's like these intense close-ups and you switch POVs mm-hmm. and there's this like battle mm-hmm. but now this scene Dector, Lecter is in the dark she can't see him mm-hmm. and so it's very different um, it's just his voice right so there's no visual contact between them wait I didn't so, yeah. get that at all he doesn't she can't see him he's like completely in the dark he's like in the shadows in that sequence oh and then he, he, he can and see then he her. comes to light and then he comes to the, the glass and then he comes to the light okay yeah. yes. but initially yes oh initially, but that is interesting okay no I, I didn't get that from the beginning okay so immediately that design kind of gives you a completely different relationship between them than the hmm. first scene which was all bright and whatnot so what did you think like, from, from the relationship well, in the scene? It gives him a little bit more intimacy, huh. but also it sets up the fact that, and this is, I think, one of the things that the movie sets up, Clarice can still see you without seeing you. Mm-hmm. So even though she can't see him, she can see him because hmm. she says things to him. And I don't remember the dialogue exactly. And this happens multiple times in the movie and leads up to the to the finale where she can't see Buffalo Bill when he has the night vision. Correct, correct. But she can eventually figure out where he is and kills him, huh. right? So uh-huh. this is setting that up. She has like night vision. She has like feminine night vision. <laughs> well, I <laughs> so have, I I have see. towards the end, I have a whole speech that I want to tell you on that. So I'll, I'll save it. Okay, we'll then. get there. But this yeah. is the first hint of that. So he's in the dark, and she can still that see him. That is really interesting. I did not get that that time around. I can see what you're saying now, but yes, it does bookend with that. That is really intriguing. And he's at the beginning of the scene. She, you don't see him at all. Like the towel comes out through that huh. drawer, and it's like, where is he? And then she, and it's like they show his huh. feet underneath the shadow. It's this very like slow, like he's hiding, and then eventually, I think. Um, Shilton turns on the lights. I think that's what happens. But they, they save that for the second half of the scene. So I always found any he's been caring with her. He's like giving her a towel because she's wet. And he says, oh, I can smell your wound. It's healing. Mm-hmm. So he's like a little animal that can, you know, the, the smelling thing was also in the first scene. Where it's like, ooh, I smell your perfume or whatever it is that he called, like the first scene. So there's a little bit of an animalistic element to the mm-hmm. way. I mean, mm-hmm. this is also his cannibalism and so forth. Um, but he cares about her. He mm-hmm. doesn't want to. A hundred percent. Yeah. Eat her. Right. Like this is very, you never get this sense that he wants, he would never want to eat her. He respects her too much. He only eats when he doesn't respect. This is my theory. Well, yeah. Whenever, whenever um, I first saw this, I thought, oh, he's playing with his food before he eats it. And this time around, I'm like, nope, he had no intention whatsoever. But the first time saying this, you're, you're always a little bit more on edge and suspicious of everybody's motives, you know? Yeah. But yeah, this I mean, and she around. says that at the end. She's like, no, he's not going to come after him. Remember, she kind yeah, of, she's, she's good. not worried at all. She's, she's good. not worried at all. But I have other justifications for that line um so after that scene unless you have any other notes the second scene we have the first introduction of buffalo bill well this is when they start to speak about the trans thing correct oh this the first time they mention it so yes there's two parts that he mentions yeah. it there's this but this is the i think first she asked is he a transvestite and he's like no 
And this is actually something Jonathan Zemi has talked about in interviews. Yeah. In answer to the backlash, it's like, no, I established the dialogue. That he, it is, is reiterated so. throughout this entire film. And listeners, please, I, I would love to know trans thoughts on this. I, I, well, we're going to get really deep into this in part two. Yeah, do you buy the explanation that the movie gives you? The movie makes it very clear. And it was Jonathan Zemi's intention mm-hmm. to make it very clear that Buffalo Bill is not transgender or transsexual or even a transvestite. Throughout the movie, they do. And so Jodie Foster, she says, like, just what from what she knows, because it's limited knowledge of transvestites and transsexuals at the time, it's the 90s. And she's just like, just from what she's learned, she said, oh, is he is he a transsexual? They're, they're usually passive and they're not violent. And Anthony very quickly squashes it. He's like, he's not. He thinks he is. And and there was this huge blowback in a lot of the trans community that are like, oh, well, a lot of people, I, I can see how that could be um, hurtful and damaging because it is a society that did not understand drag performers and transsexuals or anything at the time. And, and still to this day, I mean, there's a bigger acceptance now, but we're still not where we need to be. But I can see how people just glossed over this line. And this line is so important because it's the first reference. And we'll get into the more references and the more trans issues in the second episode. But he says, no, he thinks he is. A lot of trans people, I'm sure, have heard in their lives of like, you think that you're a woman, you think you're a man, but blah, 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 you really have this going, you're really fucked up, like things like that. So uh, that could have been a triggering line for the community. I, I could see oh that. Oh my God, I just thought of something and I don't really want to get into it. You do or you don't? I thought of something, but it might be controversial. So the first word this, and I know this is 90s. Uh-huh. She mentions transvestite, which lets make it very clear. Transvestite is just I really heterosexual. thought she said transsexual, my friend. No, I no, the, the first one, then they go into transsexual. Okay. So she says transvestite, which basically means a, man, a heterosexual man who likes to dress in women's clothes. Uh-huh. That's all that it means. It's not transsexual. It's not transgender. The word transgender did not exist, I think, or was not in right. the mainstream. People at diagnosed this era one at this into time. the other. Yeah. So um, she mentions transvestite, and he brings up the concept of transsexual, but I don't know if he does it in this conversation or in the next scene. Well, it's, it's this conversation um, for sure that I, I wrote that he's like, he is not transsexual, he is mentally ill. He's creating that divide of there's two different of like, no, no, no. One, like one is actually a thing. Like there are oh, yeah, yeah, right. transsexual he says, people. He seeks transformation. Yes. He's not really. Yes. And then I know the scene that you're not really of. a woman. He's just fucked in the head. <laughs> yeah. It's just he just wants to be something different. It has nothing to do with gender preference or sexual orientation. But it's we as a limited society, like I think because the audiences and society was kind of just ignorant and limited. They went and ran and I could definitely see how that was a negative impact, but it was not the filmmaker's intent. I, I will defend this. Like he, it was not the and intent. He, 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 but he, Jonathan is so humble. He accepts the he criticism. Sees. He's heard it. Yeah. He took it to heart. And he, but he also explains, I was trying, I was trying to say within the movie, within the dialogue yeah. that this Buffalo Bill is not transsexual, transvestite mm-hmm. or what we now call transgender. So, and he's like, I was making, it's about a, a pathology where a person hates women so much and he hates himself so much that he wants to become what he hates the most. Right. And so it's like, that's what he's, but you know, at the time you can totally hear the cries of the transgender community saying, we need better representation in movies than True. being some serial killer. Cause that what 
people think, even though this is explained very clearly in the movie. Right. And, and um, also, so, so I hear both sides. I, hear I do both too. Sides. And, and so part two, we'll get even deeper into the trans issues. I do want to say that um, at the end of this scene, or I can't remember it was the beginning of the end of the scene, Hannibal kind of hints to what his punishment is for the cheesy doctor. Uh, he's like, oh, whenever you go, they took away my art and they blare this gospel, this evangelical preacher. Oh, guy. yes. The TV's there. Oh. Yes. I think this is that scene. Yeah. Yes. What a horrible way. I mean, like, they, they take away your creativity and put all this religious rhetoric down your throat. And, and as we see, Anthony Hopkins, like Hannibal Lecter, is maybe religious. He loves you know, these drawings of churches and there's a little bit of European Catholicism that I've always... I mean, he loves Italy. He loves yeah. Italy, right? So, Chianti So I also feel like that aspect, I think he has knowledge and respect for different religions and sexual orientations and all these other things. Like, he's a very educated man. And, um, and oddly enough, empathetic. He is a psycho. However... He really Which understands is, yeah, you're the right. human and condition. So, and he's especially <laughs> caring and empathetic with Clarice, like yeah. the towel moment. Yeah. So he's not trying. That's Yeah, you pointed out a very interesting thing about the character. He's really not trying to eat her or fool her or anything. He's just really happy to be having a conversation with someone that is more interesting than him mm-hmm. and more potentially more intelligent than him mm-hmm. and more... Um, at his level mm-hmm. from what his own narcissistic perception of reality because he's also very narcissistic True. So, yeah. but at the same time I like that the way Anthony Hopkins plays him he's just he's not just a sociopath narcissistic mm-hmm. you know psychopath kills people all that stuff there's, some, there's something more to him than just being this like thing that you can dismiss right as just like a, a crazy other that will kill you mm-hmm. because he's empathetic towards her he cares about her mm-hmm. you know, like you said he understands all these different cultures and things He's a very cultured person mm-hmm. and so there is something that we can't reconcile it's like how come this really smart caring person is also a person who eat people i know and, the, and the drop of narcissistic <laughs> and all this other stuff so there's a lot of like and again i think like you said jonathan that means a humanist with these two characters, he presents a very three-dimensional, complicated picture. They're not just their stereotypes. They're not even the, the challenge to the stereotype. They're all these things. Mm-hmm. And in these really intimate scenes that are not that very that long, so much goes on. Yeah, they're And that's why they feel so much bigger. They're very intense. In the movie. Very intense. Yeah. And what you just pointed out about this, about how empathetic and you know, how cultured he is, how we were just discussing this. I didn't realize the first time around that whenever Buffalo Bill, it's almost the next scene, I believe, that um, Mm -hmm. Buffalo Bill traps the the girl, the senator's daughter. Um, Brooke Smith. Yes. (laughs) Apparently she's had this entire career on Grey's Anatomy. I've never never seen Grey's Anatomy. I like her. She's everywhere. She's a phenomenal actress. Like, I really liked her. Uh, But... So she's she's rocking out to American Girl and her thing. We're like, oh, she's like a fun chick, whatever. But I didn't realize, just to go on the empathy um, tangent, that Buffalo Bill does the Ted Bundy technique to get her, to, to kidnap her. Mm-hmm, Ted Bundy mm-hmm. was very well known for having a broken arm and limping and whatever. And he was like very, quote unquote, attractive. I mean, he was 70s attractive, I guess. Or we, we expect 70s 
killers to kind of have this Charles Manson raggedy hobo look or, you know, dress up like a clown or have a weird lazy eye going on. And so he was quote unquote, he had high cheekbones and, you know, knew how to button his shirt. So people were like, he's cute. So he was there. Um, Ted Bundy was educated and, and he would go to these well-known white suburbs and he would try to do these really ridiculous things like put a surfboard on top of a Volkswagen bug and get these Mm -hmm. girls to help him. And it's like, one, you're in Washington. Where the fuck are you surfing? Two, how did you even get that surfboard in the bug? <laughs> like, how, how did this even happen? And so and he would do that wounded animal technique to get these women and prey upon their empathy. To And he, that's how he trapped most of his victims, to be like, okay, I'm either hot and you're sexually attracted to me, or I'm wounded and you feel bad for me, so get in exactly. here. And I didn't Which realize is- that Buffalo Bill did that to this girl. He had the broken arm, was struggling with the van, and and then she got in there and boom curtains curtains for the girl um so another thing that i noticed here is the sound design i noticed that the the sound design really wants to let you know that she's conscious yes did you notice this she's yes. breathing she's moaning yeah after he hits her mm-hmm. she's not unconscious yeah which I thought was very, I never noticed that before. Mm-hmm. And when he's looking at her tag to check her size. And yeah, he's like, are you a size 14? And then knocks yeah, her out. Like, and then uh, there's a lot of. But he doesn't knock her out. She's still, that's the thing. She's not knocked out. Well, well true. I mean, her, he beats her, but. She's, and she, I think she's just terrified and froze. Yeah. Huh. But she's definitely clearly still very much there and conscious. Okay. Which I thought was interesting. Huh. Something I didn't notice before. I always thought she knocked her out and she's out. And he's just well, like Well, I just thought she was like, like breathing ragdoll. heavily and just kind of that weird, that weird realm of conscious to not. I mean, you're just there and surviving. But I can see that. I can totally see that from your point of view of, you know, she's terrified and she froze. I can see that. This is all done through sound design. Yeah. I don't know if that's when they shot it. That's what Brooke Smith was acting. Mm-hmm. But they definitely wanted you to know that she was hmm. still conscious while he's checking her size. Hmm. Something I noticed. I don't know what it means. It was definitely a sound design decision. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Um, but I thought the first time I watched it, I thought it, she was knocked out and he was right. just checking, but I wasn't maybe listening properly. I don't know. Interesting thing. You know, and, and on that tangent, I, I kind of want to visit that back in 91, I thought nothing of this, but in 2020, the whole reference to her size bothered me because mm-hmm. we've we've definitely had a body and positivity movement since then and men and women have eating disorders galore and 91 is like primo kate moss heroin chic movement and there are so many references to like she's a size 14 she's a big she's girl. a big girl um, yeah even even clarice says this yes clarice times. says this. She, yeah. she acknowledges it and then ted levine later says like oh she was a big fat person like one size 14 is not a big no. girl. and hollywood <laughs> it is but like it's not big and i i just couldn't get over of how normalized that was. That to me, that was a nut. That was a verbal assault towards women. I just thought, yep. how dare you? I thought the same thing. I was like, <laughs> and then they kept. Br- it was in the script, essentially. Like it was in the screenplay. But it was, was like, it oh, she's a big girl. I'm was like, yeah, book? she's a big girl. I'm like, she's just bright. Everyone, including Clarice. This is definitely something that we can revisit with 2020. Yeah, because I think everyone thought this was completely normal. Yeah. 
it was like a plot point that he wanted the bigger girls for the whatever degree of the skin. And meanwhile, poor Brooke Smith is being called fat on camera when she's really not. No, it was horrible. It was, it was horrible. that's horrifying to me. Saying. And then, and then also, I know I'm jumping to it, but they they reference that he keeps his victims alive for three days so they lose some weight and stretch out the skin or whatnot. If anybody has ever been on a motherfucking fast, you know you don't lose that much weight in three days. So stop it. <laughs> yeah, there were inaccuracies like, with come this on. technique. Um. So the next, so there's that sequence. The next thing I want to talk about is the when they go check out the body of the, I think the movie kind of does a lot of this misdirection where we think that's actually the same person that we mm-hmm. just saw mm-hmm. when they go in the airplane to go see the body that they yes. just found in the river. Yes. But it's mm-hmm. a different victim. Right. Um, so that's the first sequence that triggered me into thinking of David Lynch because it reminded me of the opening of Fire Walk With yes. Me. Yes. Yep. When they go see Teresa Banks, mm-hmm. right? And it was like a little bit of the banter in the plane. It was yeah. like, oh, it's Gordon Cole. Crawford is a little Gordon Cole-ish. Yeah. And and I was like, oh, interesting. And then they arrive there. And then they, the way they don't show you the body in that one scene, mm-hmm. and then they show it at the end. And you, you see the body through her reactions. Yes. Um, and the reminding of the scene, the autopsy of Laura Palmer mm-hmm. in, the first, in the pilot episode of Twin Peaks. All these different. I was like, oh. Uh, yeah, I I, I totally agree with that. And and also in that scene, wherever they go um, and she talks to the men and we get that, um, even, even the use of the extras with that whole dead-on wide shot flat point of view, you see so mm-hmm. many like seven or eight extras that are cops that are looking at Jody, And as she's just like, okay, the family, this, she's, she's appealing to like, this girl was a human and the family needs a moment and, and this is the next plan of action, listen to me. And they're... Um, you see like different guys, you know, kind of look her up and down like, who the fuck are you? And yeah, they, they're sizing up. Yep, I saw that. Yep, yeah, they size her up. And I thought that was powerful. And then she has another flashback to her dad's funeral. The funeral. You see that. And then um, I think this is right before that scene or around that scene where she's having a conversation with Crawford in the car. Yes. It happens twice in the movie. Yes. And she's looking at the back of his head first. Oh. And this is I this is my my point. Oh, I'm curious about, about that. Her there's a couple of moments. The first one was that lecture in the dark scene uh-huh. where she's having a conversation with the back head of Crawford and we've mm-hmm. established this like intense staring thing, right? Where she gets looked at in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So even though he she cannot see his eyes, she can tell what he's thinking. He mm-hmm. she references something. Mm-hmm. Like she has some second sight or well, can read body language well, or something. I, I feel like it's it's that whole thing of being diminished. She is clearly seeking out his approval, and he's not doing thing. He's not doing anything actively negative to her, but she does see through his actions, like to her face. He is like, "You're you're so great. You're you know my number one cadet." Like he's just really giving her the you know you go get him tiger. Like you're my girl. Like that that father figure that she craves, and but ultimately he is not treating her with you know respect she he is not telling her the whole deal and that that whole scene that happens he he nods to her to be like to to get the he's like okay sheriff of this 
little podunk town we need to speak but they're grisly details and so you know and motions over to her of like there's a lady in the room we gotta get so she's used as a pawn much like get out i mean oh and she she calls him on it yeah she's like don't do that yeah That's like, not, like, is it what not is advancing this? the cost or something it's like no don't do that she yeah. was so awesome yeah just like nope that's not right but i think that was her genuine confusion of that it's not right but, but it's, it's okay. okay um so then yeah so she walks into the memories of her father's funeral there's a room full of white cops and mm-hmm. one of them looks clarice up and down that's what we just talked about mm-hmm. um the other interesting thing when they applying that cream to the nose so that you don't smell the rotting body oh, she and, turns and away from the camera mm-hmm. yeah she, everyone does it in, in front of the camera and then she turns away from the camera huh. and i was like interesting oh, that i don't know what that means I but i noticed that, that. <gasps> everyone's like putting them it's like and she does it away from the camera and then comes back in because oh. she doesn't want to be looked at while she's doing that yeah. she feels the stare of the white man around her that is especially true these weirdo because cops. yeah and once again in our oh. society you do have to be a little bit more dainty i mean especially for me in the south if you sneezed or coughed in a certain non-feminine way i mean i feel like i was raised in the 50s for christ's sakes but it's just like no you there's a certain etiquette to how women react uh, act even though their bodily functions super normal it's just a yeah that's so interesting i didn't catch that and then the other thing is of course we get we don't see the murder victim's body but we see clarice's empathic reaction right and and then she's describing like laura palmer style of oh she has she has her ears pierced three times and a glitter glitter nail polish so she's not a local girl these interesting female uh generalizations or you know what i mean just like i don't know i feel like i feel like a lot of women can look up other women and just kind of be like oh she's from a small town or she's from the big city there's kind of like this kind of vogue fashion observation that jody who is west virginia slash montana by the book ballsy fbi agent she's commenting on this woman's physical appearance because still mm-hmm. at the end of the day she's a woman she knows about the latest trends i thought that was interesting and but she but as, as she's performing this she's also very upset oh of course at the state of the body so she yes. but whereas the men are not yeah but, they're like I mean, just another day and it's just another girl washed up and she's again very empathic. Mm-hmm. Oh, she says, um, when this is this the second scene in the car after this, mm-hmm. where he Crawford said, Oh, you know, using sexism to, to get rid of the sheriff. Remember, he was like mm-hmm. that comment that he made about her. Oh, she's a well, there's a lady in the room. And then he apologizes for it to her and she says, Don't do that. It matters, Mr. Crawford. So she's a feminist. She's aware of these things. It's awesome. Like she calls him on it. She's like, and that's something very 2020 that she's doing ahead of her time, Jody. Ahead of her time, Jody. Yep. She's calling her boss on it, who should, you know, he's in a power position on top of her because he's her boss and also the daddy figure thing that's going on with him. Mm -hmm. But she still calls him on it and corrects him, says, no, that's not right. You shouldn't do that. Don't do that. Very true. And, And that just made me think 
I never even went into this realm. I wonder what Jodie Foster's experiences were as, as a child actress and a beautiful child mm-hmm. actress, and she was overly sexualized in her roles. And and we do know that she's, you know, very <sighs> prominent in the industry, and and she's a lesbian, and she kept that for undercover for the longest time and people were trying to out her left and right for the longest time and it's nobody's business to really out her but it became like this ongoing joke and people refer to it and then finally she came out on her own damn time as she should and um she's extremely talented very smart highly respected and i just wonder when she was a child and playing you know these young prostitutes and just once again these overly sexualized roles you know there was probably some 70s creep, some 80s producer that probably tried something on her. I don't know. I can't speak to her experience, but I'm very curious what... She was in the belly of the beast at this time, and I really wonder what her experience was. Well, here's here. I have a recommendation for our listeners and for you, if you haven't seen this. One of her very first movies uh-huh. is the movie called The Little Girl Who Lived Down the Lane. I heard of it, but I never saw um, it. It's a horror film about a girl who lives in a house mm-hmm. and um, she was, she keeps fending off people trying to do sexual. She's 13 years old because oh, the beginning of the movie. And I don't want to give away the movie, but it's, it deals with exactly, it's like the movie is about what you just described. This little girl huh. who has to com- constantly fend off people trying to sexually assault her or do oh, things because she lives alone in this house. Oh and there's God. a plot twist about the mother and everything, but. It's a great movie, very obscure, and it's actually a reference in Twin Peaks: The Return when um, I think Audrey, played by Sherilyn Fan, says, "Is it the little girl who lived down the lane?" Oh, it's a reference to yes. that Jodie Foster movie. Oh wow! And I take wow. it it is a reference because um, I think Laura Palmer says that her father was raping her when she was 13, which is the exact same age of Jodie Foster in that movie. And that wow. movie is about, um, it has some undertones of incest and sexual assault. Uh-huh. So I think J- David Lynch is making a reference to Jodie Foster in that movie. You know, the that reference- went completely over my head. Wow. I totally get that now. You- I, I only huh. because I was like, well, that's a weird line in the in the return. They keep mentioning the little girl who lived down the lane and the like weird tree thing mentions it again. So I found this movie and I watched it. I'm like, oh, my God, this is Laura Palmer at 13. That this makes is so what he's much referencing. sense to me at the time. How I I had that in my head, how I digested that was like, oh, the little girl down the lane of, you know, there was always kind of that girl that people whisper about in, in Georgia. It was always like the preacher's daughter. The preacher's daughter was always the wildest. So I went to that kind of uh, town rumor, like aspect of it. I didn't get that reference to that extent. Wow. And <gasps> so, I know, and I'm so going to educate me. even you more to that. Time. Because I think Twin Peaks The Return, the whole point of that is that, you know how, in spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. Um, that the whole point is that supposedly through time travel and weird surreal things, Agent Cooper is able to save Laura Palmer from dying. Mm-hmm. But what the show is telling you, that's not the that's, worst thing that's, that's happened. The worst thing that happened was the was rape actually at 13. Her, her salvation. Yeah. She, she could never live and be a normal person after this horrible thing happened to her. 
So if you really wanted to save her, you got to go back to when she was 13 exactly. and break for the first time like by you, Bob slash Leland. Like you got the wrong activity, buddy. You exactly. got the wrong thing. Which is kind of amazing when you think about it. Huh. So it's all because of this weird reference to this Jodie Foster movie that you wow. kind of get that. It's amazing. I love it. Wow. It's amazing. So let's jump to they take the cocoon out of the girl's throat. And that's when they start. Wait. Oh, that's still in that scene. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Because I was like, I have this very important point, but that's the next scene. <laughs> so they take it out and they discover it's a pod. And um, I, I do like how um, this one minor character, the coroner, is just like, oh, they're, you know, swamp things getting people's throats all the time. It's like bugs and plants and whatever. Like he just isn't interested in these fine details. And that, that sat with me a little bit of, oh, this is just another dead bitch for you guys. Like, aren't you trying to solve a crime? Shouldn't you be looking at everything, you know? Um, and it's Twin Peaks, right, where they – they remove the fingernails and there's like the letters. Mm-hmm. The, the letter. The letters. And, and so that kind of jumped back to me of when they took the cocoon out of her throat. It's just, it looked like it was. Interesting. It's like that moment where Agent Cooper pulls out mm-hmm. the letter where he finds out yeah. more beneath the surface. And she's like, oh, this is a clue. Killer. This is planted. This is very specific. So it was her attention to detail that got them to the next scene. But on that note, we got to wrap up part one, and I got to refresh my drink, buddy. All righty, all righty. We have things to say. All right, come back to us in part two of Silence of the Lambs, and we're going to get right into it with the bug guys. That was sound design by Guillermo Rodriguez. I hope you appreciate it. (laughs) All right, see you guys for part two. R.I.P. R.B.G.